Today's speaker is um, Katie Fitzgerald, uh, who's a recent uh, PhD graduate from the Ohio State University's Department of Comparative Studies. Her research focuses on contemporary Tibetan religion, oral traditions, lay Buddhism, and women's practices. Her work can be seen in, for instance, the Asian Theater Journal, the Routledge Handbook of Asian Theater, the Revue d'Etudes Tibetain, and Asian Ethnology. Today, she will talk about the preliminary practices, bloody knees, callous palms, and the transformative nature of women's labor. And without further ado, Katie, take it away. Okay, thanks so much. Um, I'm gonna try to share my screen, hopefully with some success. Okay, can you see the PowerPoint? Yes. Okay, perfect. Um, so thank you so much for inviting me to talk today. It's been really nice um, the past two weeks and I'm also looking forward to the coming speakers. Um, it's kind of a nice, uh, during, during this quarantine self-isolation period to get a little bit of uh, scholarly brain food. It's been really nice. Um, so I'm gonna um, talk, basically my talk today comes from um, one of my chapters of my dissertation. Um, and then after I'm finished, I also just wanted to mention that if um, if there's interest that I can also talk a little bit about um, the kind of process of performing field work or the transition from field work to dissertation writing, because that's um, what's been most fresh in my mind. So especially for current graduate students, if there, if you, you know, that's, if there are questions about that that can be helpful to, to discuss, then I'm happy to talk about those. Um, okay, so I will begin. Um, Chinli Samuel laughs and grimaces simultaneously as she recalls her own preliminary practices. She so shows me on her body where she developed wounds during her prostrations, her palms, her knees, her forehead. She closes her eyes tightly and recites mantras breathily in the countenance she adopts whenever she discusses Lama Tenzin Rinpoche. She talks about the wear and tear her body experienced while accumulating her 100,000 prostrations of the aching joints and bloody bandages which tore her wounds open when she changed them. She speaks of this time with a combination of pride and reverence. It was difficult, she completed it, she was changed by it. So in this paper, I explore the preliminary practices of a group of women in a Tibetan um, region in rural Qinghai province called Bongwa Mema. Specifically, I focus on nuns and lay women who utilize a set of teachings and practices which are originally um, composed by the fourth Flobongjol, uh, um, which is on the left side of the screen here. Um, and this, the second text, um, which I have pictured up on the screen, just this past uh, January, when I was back in the field, there were new, a new set of teachings. Um, basically, the kind of um, meat of the teachings were the same and by the same individual, but um, they, they have produced a new text as well. So the, the preliminary practices have been compiled and edited by the current um, These practices and teachings not only initiate practitioners into the Jikung Kagyu tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, but also more fundamentally into Vajrayana Buddhism as it is practiced in this region. Although monks and lay um, male practitioners also tend to perform the same preliminary practices, I focus specifically on women because of their unique relationship with physical labor. So in this presentation, I will address um, women's domestic labor, child labor, by which I don't mean child labor as in like children working in factories. I mean women 
giving birth to children. I'm trying too hard to use this word labor, and I think it comes across more about um, kids performing labor, but I mean the kind of labor involved in giving birth to a child and then rearing them, um, as well as religious labor. Okay, so um, Bulma Mema is a nomadic area in Yushu Tibetan Autonomous Region, and it's located on the border between Nongchen and Zadu. So this map here, you can kind of see the little red splotch on the bottom. Um, it's a little bit uh, in between the, the kind of yellow bit to the left of there, so it's right on the border between those two regions. Um, the main forms of economic production in this region are a combination of nomadic animal husbandry and caterpillar fungus cultivation. Nomadic household duties are almost exclusively performed by women, while men take responsibility for the economic duties outside of the home. Um, because of a transition within the ec economy towards settlement and enforced schooling, which is happening across Tibetan regions, uh, many families have transitioned or partially transitioned into town life. So opportunities to live with full-time nomadic communities are limited. Nevertheless, the Nyangtsang family maintains a full-time nomadic settlement. Um, and continue to use the kind of summer winter camp model. After ceremonies at Lungkar Monastery, 67-year-old Nyangtang sister Tsepa and her husband Gatse, so Tsepa is the woman here with the bishi, um, asked me to give, her, give them a ride home to their nomadic settlement. Tsepa is a tiny woman, stocky in stature, and never seen without her head dressing, a heavy crown of amber, coral, turquoise, and bone gems sewn onto cloth straps that drape far down her back. She's quick to smile and loves a bit of gossip, but her fingers are bent at odd angles from arthritis and prolonged overuse. After arriving at dusk, I spend the night in their settlement, and when we get up the following morning, the two-day full moon is still out over the mountains, and the four women currently at home uh, are out collecting yak dung before releasing the yaks to graze for the day. I squat to pee overlooking the fields where a soft fog is rising off the mountain dew and go to wash up at Tsipa's house, where Tlagil, her son, and Getze are still sleeping and the, with the youngest children. Kunjok Pamul, who is Tipa's daughter, and a Zalung nunnery nun, is wrangling the stove back to life and tells me there's no hot water yet to wash. So we use cold water to brush our teeth and wash our faces. A teenage girl, Taryang, and I take buckets and yolks down to the stream at the bottom of the valley to collect water for the day. Kunjok Pamul brews tea on the now roaring fire and the men come out of their rooms to ensure the herds are set on course to their proper pastures and then they receive breakfast. Over a breakfast of milk tea and samba, the family discusses plans for the day. Everyone is finishing up their morning prayers as they bustle about washing up, eating, dressing, and preparing for their work. Kunjo Pamo's prayers are interrupted as she refills tea and washes dishes. And Tepa puts down her hand money wheel to comb the children's hair. She's rough getting out the knots, occasionally using the butt of her comb to smack the wiggling and whining children into compliance all the while continuing to recite her prayers. Kunjo Pomo continuously has to stop recitations to get up and stoke the fire, replenish water, feed others, and go get dung. So much happens in a nomadic household before the sun fully rises, and the day's work continues throughout all waking hours as family members tend to animals, clean and mend the house and stables, cook five meals, care for children, and transform raw animal products into items that can be consumed or sold. For women whose families have transitioned to village or town life, domestic and child care responsibilities shift. Women are still responsible for waking up before the rest of the family, starting a fire in the stove, fetching water from wells, preparing tea, waking and dressing children, cooking all the meals, keeping the fires lit, cleaning the house, and entertaining guests. But they leave behind the responsibility to collect and process dung for fuel, 
milk the herds and make butter and cheese, uh, as well as process meat and other duties as well. The da daily necessities of sustenance can be purchased at a store instead of produced at home, which theoretically gives women more free time in the home. In either the nomadic encampment or the town centers, the domestic labor of the household rests almost exclusively on the shoulders of women. These responsibilities and daily activities shape the ways in which women talk about and think about their religious practice. Women's labor not only encompasses the realm of domestic labor, but also spreads to the duties of child care, um, so childbirth, rearing, education, discipline, and nurturing. Anne uh, is 64 years old and has given birth 11 times. Four of her children, two boys and two girls, have died. She also adopted an infant after its mother died in childbirth, leaving her with seven biological and one adopted child. She tells me about the loss of her twin boys a number of times during our time together. She repeats this story when we discuss my own fertility, a favorite subject amongst my female friends, as well as she, when she recounts her oral history to me. Alone in her home, her husband away for work, she went into labor and delivered two twin boys herself. She cut their umbilical cords herself, wrapped them in a blanket and went outside to tend the herds. If she didn't bring home the animals and milk them, they could die or get ill and then the whole family would starve. She was hemorrhaging blood and the twin boys were weak and sickly. She tried to nurse them and tend the herds, but before her husband could return home, the children died. She went to a hospital and received an injection to stop her own bleeding, but there was nothing to be done for the babies. Over the course of nearly three years of fieldwork and interviews, I came to see that every woman I interviewed over the age of 35 has lost at least one child. Reasons for this high child mortality rate amongst these women have various causes, including higher rates of pregnancy complica complications like um, hypoxia from high altitude populations and preeclampsia because of the high fat diet of nomads. Nomadic populations also lack access to hospitals, something sometimes living more than a day's journey away from any kind of medical center. The climate and environment also play an important role. Um, this region has habitable camps at over 4,500 meters, um, which is well above the tree line and temperatures can reach as low as negative 40 degrees Celsius. Um, and there's very high winds as well. At least one child um, drowned in a river during my fieldwork period. So whatever the myriad causes, it's a reality of life for this population that motherhood comes with the burden of seemingly inevitable child mortality. In addition to the obvious uh, difficulties of pregnancy and labor, along with the treacherous emotional processes involved in child loss, women's child-rearing duties do not end with birth. Ame, in this picture with her little girl, uh, got pregnant with her fifth child at 40 years old. Her next oldest son was 12 years old at the time, and she recalls to me having to stop him from breastfeeding after she became pregnant. Although he obviously ate solid food and no longer relied upon breast milk for nutrition, he still suckled for comfort at night or when he was upset. After becoming pregnant unexpectedly, she had to stop him from breastfeeding so that the fetus would not be deprived of the nutrients going to her breast milk. Amma's experience is not unique in that most mothers stop breastfeeding one child when they become pregnant with another due to the enormous strain that breastfeeding and pregnancy put on a woman's body. Child rearing duties do not, do not end after menopause either, as most grandparents live with one of their sons and his new bride and continue to care for their young children until the grandparents are too sick to contribute. Young children often cleave to their grandparents and frequently sleep with and are more attached to their grandfather or mother than their own parents. 
mothers and grandmothers can frequently be seen carrying their smallest children tied to their backs or strapped to their fronts when they carry baskets of water uh, on their backs. Children in this region are now required to enter school between eight and nine years old, but traditionally children stay close to their mothers, sharing every aspect of life until the child either enters a monastery or marries into another household. For male children, they will ideally find a bride to enter the home and they will never leave their parents. For Ame, for example, her journey as a mother and wife began when she was 19 years old and she continues to breastfeed and care for an infant 22 years later. When her son decides to marry, she will again take on the responsibility of childcare. So despite this strain of domestic and child labor upon Bulma Mema's women, the first entry point into serious religious practice is also physical labor. Although there's a large diversity across uh, Tibetan Buddhist tra traditions on the timing order and pace of the preliminary practices, um, we might generalize by saying that novices in the Nyingma and Solchen and Sakya and Kagyu schools of Tibetan Buddhism utilize preliminary practices as a way of initiating new members, um, preparing practitioners for tantric initiation, and introducing the fundamental practices of the lineage. The preliminary practices are, are div divided into these, the general outer preliminaries, and then the um, extraordinary inner preliminaries, each of which have their own divisions. The outer preliminaries involve study and contemplation on the four thoughts that turn the mind, uh, what we might also call the four motivations to practice. The inner, inner preliminaries um, involve, as you can see here, taking refuge, generating bodhicitta, reciting the mantra and performing the meditations of Vajrasattva, uh, making mandala offerings and then performing guru yoga and there's different kind of divisions of this depending on the the teaching but this is the specific kind of delineation that's used in this monastery um, i focus in this paper on the first of the inner preliminaries the process of taking refuge in the three jewels so this process um, involves rec recitation of a specific verse while performing full body prostrations this process of prostration, accompanying visualizations, and recitation of the refuge prayer is repeated 100,000 times, which sounds like a number that you hear a lot in kind of Buddhist literature, and you kind of think, yeah, yeah, 100,000 times, but 100,000 times is really a significant number of times. <laughs> um, so what does a prostration entail? A prostration is a movement of the body from a fully erect position um, to laying completely prone upon the ground and a return to a standing position. This kind of like a burpee. Um, this movement is accompanied by hand motions that place the fingertips together with the thumbs resting in the spaces between the palms. The hands move up to the crown of the head, down to the throat, down to the heart, and then open, palms facing forward as the body moves down to the floor. When down on the ground, the arms go straight above the head, um, palms flat on the ground, and then the palms, the hands move up to the crown of the head with the fingertips pressed together. After rising once again to a standing position, the hands return to the heart center. Um, before beginning the process again. This physical act is performed while reciting the refuge prayer, the one that's used in this um, particular tradition that I have uh, up on the screen. It's interesting, uh, but it's generally, you know, the same kind of idea as all refuge prayers, um, and visualizing the field of accumulation. Um, and this is all done a hundred thousand times. I want to emphasize again. Um, so how do women themselves understand the act of taking refuge through a process of rather extreme physical labor? 45-year-old mother of six, Kundral, tells me how she ac accumulated 3,000 prostrations every day during her preliminary practices. She downplays her own abilities by telling me of certain monks or young men who can accumulate up to 5,000 in one day. 
When I point out the fact that she continued to care for a family of eight during this process, she laughs. I ask her about the effects on her body, and she says it was very painful to eat, uh, walk, sleep, crouch to use the toilet, or bend to pick anything up during this time. But she mentions that she is used to hard work, not unaccustomed to aching joints and sleepless nights. She tells me however many prostrations one can do is good, and the point is just to keep going. Kundra Chudrun is a 56-year-old nun, but she stays at home with her aging parents approximately half of the year. She performed her preliminary practices in the nunnery while in retreat. Her young cousin, who's also a nun, stayed with her to cook, clean, fetch water, keep the stove lit, and make tea. She points to the parts of her body that caused her problems during the practice, her back, her knees, her shoulders. She mentions that she performs dozens of fasting rituals, this nyungne, every year, so she knows that discomfort is best dealt with gradually. You can get used to anything you do enough of. Prostrations are more mental than physical, she says. So she suggests any time that one feels exhausted to just rest in the beautiful emptiness of the mind that comes from exhaustion. But don't rest too much or too long. She says to sit for one minute after every prayer bead cycle, which is 108 prostrations, and then break up both the sessions. Many of the women took time away from their household or monastic duties during their preliminary practices to do a kind of retreat, but others had to squeeze in domestic and childcare duties around their busy schedule. So women presented the following as one example of an ideal schedule while performing the first step of the preliminary practices. So four daily practice sessions broken apart around the larger three meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. In this region, there are five main meals, um, but the three uh, breakfast, lunch, dinner are the kind of larger, more important meals. Um, and then interspersed with the secondary two meals, so the kind of mid-morning and mid-afternoon snacks, but they're meals uh, as well. And then along with various tea breaks. So women emphasized again and again that it is very important to eat enough food and to sleep well, but it is also important not to rest too much. If your muscles get cold and stiff, it will be even more difficult to get going again. According to Kunjuk Chudrin, the nun from the previous photo, the best method is to maintain a slow but steady sp uh, pace throughout all waking hours. In the beginning days when the body is still adjusting to this new level of exercise, maintain the same schedule but move more slowly. So for example, you might kind of do a lot of calculations involved in this. So in the, in the beginning, you might imagine um, aiming for 100 prostrations per hour, um, but then maybe you can work yourself up to 600 per hour, so 20 per, no, 100 per every 20 minutes. But she mentions, don't focus too heavily on the number of prostrations, but rather on maintaining the quality of your meditation and intention, but also do not stop. Even when the meditation falters or the mind wanders, keep moving, keep pushing forward. This message was consistent throughout all the advice I received. Transformation on the Buddhist path is not soft and pleasant, but neither is a woman's life, so keep going. So religious and domestic labor are both forms of work, as in they are systems of action that produce results. Religious and domestic labor are also ways of indicating morality, good behavior, and dedication to parents, deities, or monasteries. Women perform more labor than their male counterparts, and this unique relationship with physical labor is conceived of in two important ways by the women of Bongamema. The first is as an obstacle to practice, and the second is as an essential element of liberation. In either of these cases, labor does something to women. It either prevents them from having the time, resources, or freedom to participate in religious activities, 
or their domestic labor makes them better practitioners. This is the kind of two ways that women frequently talked about uh, the relationship between their religious practice and their domestic labor practices. Um, this framework of efficacy both indicates productivity as well as re relies upon labor and effort as a transformative tool. These two ways of understanding the relationship between labor and religious realization are not mutually exclusive. And the same woman might express both views even over the course of one conversation. Domestic labor is both a samsaric burden that detracts from spiritual practice as well as a training for both the aversion to the samsaric world necessary to begin the spiritual journey as well as the extreme dedication and perseverance necessary to achieve spiritual accomplishment. Okay, so first on the on, on uh, labor as a as an obstacle. Um, so one way that women talk about um, domestic labor, especially related to the household and childcare, is, is that it's a distraction and an impediment to practice. This is an argument familiar to both um, male and female householders throughout Buddhist history. The argument being that the home and its demands detract from a householder's ability to break away from the samsaric world. Adding a layer of gendered analysis, I find that female interviewees are much more likely to bring up their domestic duties in relationship to religious practice than their male counterparts. When asking nuns, for example, at Dzalung Nunnery about their experiences becoming nuns, almost every nun stated that they chose a religious life, at least in part, to avoid the pain and suffering of marriage and its subsequent labor. So I'm going to here quote a little um, uh, vignette from my field notes. So it's in the present tense, I think. I, I get my tenses mixed up a lot in, in these field note pieces, so uh, bear with me. Um, I went with Trinli Sangmo to Zalung Nunnery to deliver some medicine and deity cards to the retreat center, where nine nuns are in their first month of their three-year retreat. We stop at the house of Namjul. We go through old cassette tapes together because Namjul believes they are uh, starting to deteriorate with age. There are two tapes of Lama Tanzanima's music, which we listen to with joy. There's also a tape of Lama Tanzanima's preliminary practice teachings, which Trinli Sangmo said he made for her because they were not able to meet often during her preliminaries. She says the teachings were really helpful and enabled her to complete her practices. Uh, we then sit around and gossip about former nuns who now put on makeup and post pictures with boyfriends on WeChat. We watch videos from the wedding of Namjul's niece in Naptu. She married two nephews of uh, one of the lamas of the monastery. Namjul recounts how her niece cried when she had to be married. They all agree that becoming a wife is pure suffering. Chinli Samo teases me that I should become a nun, and I explain that it is very difficult to be a nun in America with no monastic community, no source of income, and no teacher. Uh, they tell me that becoming a nun would actually limit my mobility and my opportunities to travel and benefit others. They say that what I'm doing now uh, is better than becoming a nun. So I quote this entry from my field notes at length to highlight a few things. The first is the point of view of nuns um, about marriage, a point of view shared by a lot of women laywomen as well. Marriage is painful. In this region, marriage generally occurs when a young woman leaves home and enters the household of her husband. Although some women marry into a household close to their own homes, many women marry into, into a household a significant distance from their parents. Women generally have the right to return to their parents' home once per year for a visit or if there is an illness or birth. Uh, there are some occasions when a man, a man would leave his family and enter uh, the family of his wife, but this practice is looked down upon in this region and men in this situation are viewed as having lacking economic power within the home. 
When women enter a household, they often marry all the brothers of the home at once. This practice developed in order to keep hereditary lands together and prevent multiple brothers from demanding separate plots of land uh, or herds and thereby diminishing the wealth of the family unit. The tradition remains in use today because nomadic life requires a, lot, a large amount of work and having more than one young man in a home is seen as a great advantage. For example, if one husband remains at the nomadic settlement to tend the herds, another husband can take animal products to sell in a distant region without leaving the home vulnerable. Women tend to not be able to drive um, or to have any formal education, making them less able to participate in formal economies in town centers. Um, but they are needed in the home to care for the frequently large family of her in-laws, husbands, and children. As the nuns pointed out to me, for a young woman, marriage means separation from one's own family, as well as introduction into an unfamiliar family. All, almost all marriages are still arranged, although this practice is really changing rapidly. Um, in addition, marriage means the beginning of taking the responsibility of a new household, which can include up to four generations and many members. For most women, marriage marks the beginning of a life of labor, and the Zaling nunnery nuns are grateful to be excused from that form of labor. Nevertheless, the nuns' aversion to marriage was not just a foil for praising their own lifestyle. When I expressed to them why it would be difficult for me to become a nun, they responded very quickly and adamantly that the restrictions placed on them as nuns were prohibitive in many ways, and that my position as a childless laywoman was actually preferable. So this was a topic that we discussed frequently, um, and they cited travel restrictions placed on them by the government, as well as monetary restrictions that prevented them from working and saving money independently, as well as um, this kind of cultivated, but at the same time loathed shyness, um, all as forces that kind of prevented them from seeking out educational opportunities or attending teachings from lamas um, at other Buddhist institutions or from maybe doing spiritual retreats um, in foreign places, places far from home. I mention this because I think it's important to note that the nuns did not have a romantic vision of being a nun in opposition to the suffering of married life. They recognized the ways in which all life paths have restrictions and that their nunhood does not shield them from the burden of duty. Kunjo Pomo is also a Zalangun nun who wears robes and maintains her vow, but she lives at home in a nomadic settlement in Yukto. She's, um, I don't know how to point on this. Can you see my, my, my little thing? It's this one, if you can see me. <laughs> um, I'm trying to point to her with my pointer, but I'm not sure if you guys can see. She's like I on the, see. yeah, you can see? Okay, this, this woman right here. <laughs> um, the daughter-in-law of her household, so her brother's wife, um, got fed up with nomadic life and demanded that she and one of the brothers move to the town center. They took a few of the children with them, but left two behind. Feeling that the two grandparents and one son were not equipped to take care of the two children, settlement and the herds on their own, uh, Kunjo Pomo was called home from the nunnery. Whenever I visit, she, said she has her prayer book propped open on the table, which she references once in a while as she recites her prayers while adding yak dung to the stove. She also cooks all the household meals, bathes and entertains the two small children, fetches water, milks the herds, collects and dries the dung, etc. One afternoon, Kunjo Pomo and I were sitting by the fire cleaning dirt and debris from the caterpillars. So nuns are not allowed to pick um, the yadzakumbu, the caterpillar fungus, um, but they're allowed to clean them. Um, so cleaning the dirt and debris from the caterpillars. And she talks about her life. Uh, she would prefer to stay at the nunnery, she says, because there's less work there. This less work is not simply about having more free time, but about having more mental space. 
Although there is still a lot of work to do to maintain life in the nunnery, it is quieter. The kids don't scream, guests don't come by demanding attention, the family dramas that occupy a central part of any household are kind of dulled by distance. But the decision is not hers to make. When her parents agree that she can leave again, she'll leave. If they decide she must stay, she will stay. Her brother is a monk studying in a monastic college nearby, but it would be unthinkable to call him home to care for the family. It is not a discussionable point. Lay women, like nuns, often talk about marriage and domestic life as a heavy burden on their religious practice. When women talk about the religious practices they would do if only they had more time, it might be simply rhetorical, a way of simultaneously showing domestic dedication and a virtuous aspiration, maybe the same way that we talk about um, future exercise goals or charitable donations to be given in a kind of fictional future. So they might be kind of rhetorical device in some ways. But there are also instances where women's labor practices directly impede their ability to attend religious activities. Um, Palki, so the woman in the red, um, is an extremely tall um, and buxom woman. She's married for the second time and lives near a monastery where her oldest child lives as a monk. I visit her home one morning and her husband suggests we go circumambulate the monastery and climb the mountain to the retreat complex up on its hillside. I ask Palki to join us, but her husband interrupts to say she cannot leave the house or the fire will go out. Later in the year, Palki and I work together in the monastery kitchen during the annual Purpa festival. She calls me to go with them every time there's a blessing to be received so we can go into the assembly hall together. I ask her each time what empowerment is being given and what blessing we are receiving. And she says again and again, how am I supposed to know we're all in the kitchen together? But she asks the monk for me each time and reports back her answer. We hide away during our break so she can sing nomadic songs and complain about her varicose veins. So the second way that women describe their relationship with labor is as a liberative tool. Uh, I bring Namdrul back to the, the nunnery this morning and the way we chat about why it seems that so many nuns are performing retreats while so few monks are doing the same. She says that many lamas, including Lungar Monastery's own Orgin Dorji Rinpoche and Kempo Tsutum Lodru, have repeated many times that nuns are better practitioners than monks. They know how to work hard and have a strong motivation for practice, whereas monks like to play and joke around. So this idea of a liberative tool manifests itself in two ways. One, that women have more difficult lives and therefore more easily develop aversion to the material world. And two, that women are trained from a young age to work diligently and have strict discipline, which are necessary traits for the religious life, for a religious life. One of the main catalysts for practice is a, um, an aversion to the samsaric world. In order to turn away from samsara, a practitioner must realize um, the inherent suffering of samsaric existence. This realization, of course, can come about through various avenues, like seeing the suffering of others or intellectually understanding the impermanence and suffering, the kind of cycle of life and death, etc. There's a lot of pathways to it. But women claim that their own experiences with suffering make them realize more quickly and more urgently that the world contains boundless suffering. This manifests itself in the pain of leaving home to become a bride in a strange household, of marrying into a large family, of taking on the responsibility of fetching water, lighting the fire, rising first, sleeping last, cooking all meals, cleaning all dishes, kneading the dough, baking the bread, burying the children, breastfeeding the children, cleaning urine and exc excrement off those children, performing the milking, collecting fresh dung and spreading it to dry, collecting more water, sometimes from a stream covered in ice more than a kilometers walk away taking care of aging parents-in-law, satisfying the needs of all male brothers of the household, 
all without the ability to read, write, drive a car, open a bank account, or leave the confines of home without permission or a chaperone. When discussing with women whether or not their lives are more difficult than those of their male counterparts or their male relatives, I'm almost always met with laughter. It is laughable to even question out loud whose lives are more difficult. Not only are women more experienced in the painful nature of samsara, but their lives of labor cultivated from a very early age prepare them mentally and physically for a life of religious labor. Buddhist liberation is often framed as a difficult, tedious, and vicious process, one that requires extreme dedication, devotion, faith, and perseverance. Liberation through Vajrayana is not for the faint of heart, and women have cultivated that knowledge in their lived experiences from a very young age. The end of the prostration accumulation portion of one's preliminary practices can be a bit anticlimactic. After days or months of work, practitioners prostrate for the last time, not really knowing how to stop. They sit down, they move forward to the new accumulations. Their muscles train to always move in the same way, prostration after prostration, hour after hour, day after day. The body has been broken down, the ego demolished, ready to begin the next step in their preliminary practices. It's tempting to imagine that because labor is transformative, it is also inherently good for women, that these toils are romantic and value positive. Far from shifting the paradigm, we would just be swapping in variables. The philosophic and literary avenues of Buddhist study are less pure Buddhism than the bodily labors of the masses, but that's not what I hope to achieve. And I don't think that's uh, really the argument that any women themselves are making. First of all, the women of Bomba Memma themselves maintain an ambivalent attitude toward the productive power of labor. On the one hand, domestic and child labor can be uh, a distraction from and a catalyst toward uh, religious practice. So labor of the body within the home can build the necessary skills of perseverance, patience, and endurance needed for a strong spiritual practice. On the other hand, uh, the, women the work that women perform in the household can hold them back from having the time, energy, and resources needed to, to devote to something like their preliminary practices. The very physically demanding entry into religious uh, practice presented in the preliminary practices is a form of labor a productive and inevitable aspect of religious life that produces real results. Something happens to these women when they perform 100,000 prostrations. The calluses and wounds and aching joints are an external manifestation of an internal process of submission. But submission is not inactive. Women take time out of their labor-filled days to turn their minds and bodies toward the object of their refuge. They do so not out of convenience, um, but out of devotion and faith for a lama, for the teachings, and for the promise that this labor will change them. And that transform transformation, I argue, is at the heart of tantric practice in contemporary Tibet. Okay. So I didn't... Uh,